0: Welcome to Island Idols I'm Barry Menikoff calling in from Honolulu and you are Aaron Menikoff calling in from Atlanta and this is a podcast about books and life Welcome back to Island Idols. We are here for episode 24, the last season of episode number two. And uh, I'm not going to say that we've saved the best for last, but we have decided to tackle a pretty incredible book in this final episode of uh, this season, Island Idols, the novel Anna Karenina. Uh, We introduced uh, our audience to Leo Tolstoy, uh, during our last episode, but now we're about to venture in uh, roughly an 800-page behemoth of a book that many say may be the best novel ever written. What do you what do you make of that kind of praise?
1: Well, of course, it's high praise, and nobody is going to. Everybody says Tolstoy is one of the greatest novelists, if not the greatest novelist, but. I'm not sure. I'm not one for, you know, making these big categories. I mean, it's certainly a massive book, and it's certainly a book that stood the test of time and has captured readers when they, when they approach
0: it. If you were stranded on a desert island, not Hawaii, because you've got libraries in Hawaii, but if you're stranded on a desert island and you've got one book that you can take with you, what book would you take? Whoa, that is a
1: question. That is a question. What, what book would I take? Would I take Anna Karenina? Well, actually, you know, I was thinking about what are the great love stories in great literature. I was trying to make a little list of them for this podcast. I'm not sure I would Anna Karenina would be the book I would choose, but then as a personal favorites, you know, I would choose maybe I think one of the great love stories is a farewell to arms by Ernest Hemingway.
0: really? yeah. Yeah, now, you probably wouldn't take Robert Louis Stevenson because you, like, know all those books. They're in your head. So you would take something else, right?
1: By the way, David Balfour is also one of the great love stories. Actually, it was hard to come up with a lot of great love stories. Would you believe it? It was It's actually not that easy. I was starting to think, what are the, because Anna Karenina, one of the reasons it always has such a big, prominent place is because it's a great love story. Right. And everybody says, if you want to read a great love story, you have to read Anna Karenina. But then somebody said, ask somebody and say, are well, the next five books to read, and you'd see they'd have a very, very hard
0: time. You know, Dad, you are a, uh, it doesn't matter that I mean this, it's just a reality that you are a, a leading expert in Robert Louis Stevenson. And here we're finishing out our second full season of Island Idols, and we've really not engaged Stevenson, except I think we, we talked about his, his poem. Um, the system, maybe in in season number one. I have my reasons for us not going to Stevenson in these first couple of seasons, but you've never kicked back. I'm just curious. Why do you think we haven't gone to Stevenson?
1: Well, because you're the director and I take my cue from you. But I would tell the audience, you know, for a great love story, David Balfour is really one of the great love stories. And I'm not the only one that said it. Gary Will said that. Gary Will is a great, you know, uh, political theorist and, uh, yeah, and uh, public intellectual. Was asked by the New York Times when he's interviewed, what is a great love story? And he says, David and Balfour, David and Katrina is one of the great love stories. So there we go.
0: Yeah, we're going to have to cover that eventually. Some have called uh, Anna Karenina, uh, they put it in the genre of the family novel. Is that what you mean by love story, Dad? Or, or does family novel refer to something else?
1: I don't know what family novel means, frankly, unless it's a novel that deals with, you know, a, c- a culture. Every family is in any book. I mean, uh, you know, Arthur Miller said the family is the structure of tragedy, of drama. Uh, going back to Greek drama. So I don't know what the term means with respect to uh, a novel.
0: Practically for Anna Karenina, the the plot is built around basically three units. You've got, and I don't, Dad, in the, you, you know in, um, in Russian culture there's so many different names for individuals, so I don't remember all of them. But you've got the Oblonskys, you've got Stepan and his wife Dolly, You've got Anna Karenina, her husband, Alexei Karenin, and then eventually you've got Levin and and Kitty. So Mm -hmm. there are other characters, but these six, they're really the backbone of these 800 pages. So I I, I gather it's maybe, um, it's just not uncommon to build a story around the uh, trials and tribulations of family units.
1: Okay. Right. But these families are also representative of Russian culture and Russian society. And, you know, more generally,
0: They're so through these families,
1: yeah. he, he becomes, uh, he, well, not just aristocratic, because through Levin, you begin to see another level of Russian society, the people who work on his estate. Uh, so they become a venue by which you can explore the whole Russian uh, culture and the whole Russian, you know, society, at different levels. So yes, but but on some basic level, of course, you're right. I mean, they're all family units, and they're all families that, uh, from which, you know, all the all these all the themes that that Tolstoy deals with here emanate. Not to mention, you know, sexuality, infidelity, jealousy, parents and children.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because. One of the things I remember from reading your introduction to David Balfour is how attuned you are to the changing mores of a society. And it seems like often you look at it uh, in terms of how maybe the publishing industry might have censored a particular author because that author was too avant-garde or was pushing the envelope in, in issues of sexuality, promiscuity, infidelity, what have you and you've been really sensitive to that in your career and in your in your criticism this book anna karenina i mean right out of the gate the you're introduced to stepan who is uh you know who had an affair and his wife dolly you know doesn't really know what to do and and uh, y- you know she she has enough wealth at least her family does that she could conceivably leave but the 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 book begins with you know, Anna visiting and, uh, you know, trying to convince Dolly not to leave Stepan, who's her brother. And so right out of the gate, the topic is infidelity. Well, here's my question, Dad. You know, Tolstoy is writing at the end of the, the, uh, the toward the end of the 19th century. And um, in the 21st century, in 2020, infidelity for a lot of readers just isn't as interesting as it once was. Hi, you asking me why that is? I'm not asking you why that is. I'm asking, uh, I'm wondering, is the, does that make this family novel, this drama about people's infidelity, their adultery, is it just less interesting, do you think, for average readers today? I don't think so.
1: Because, uh, you know, okay, the consequences of infidelity are different obviously. Uh, Anna today would not have to worry about losing her child if she were to get a divorce or not being able to remarry. So those consequences are different, but the experiences are not any different. I mean, you can read contemporary novels and people will will go on pages about the pain of the uh, discovery, uh, about jealousy, about, you know, sense of, you know, how do I feel, or what's happening to me, or my sense of self-worth, all of those issues which Tolstoy examines. I mean, you go through the picture of what goes through Anna's mind, through the whole course of the novel and her relationship with Vronsky, and you see the turmoil and the experience of a woman in going through all these various stages of pain, of paranoia, of regret, etc., etc., etc. So, Although the consequences, somebody would say, well, infidelity doesn't, you know, mean anything today. You know, I don't believe that.
0: Well, I I couldn't agree with you more. But I think it's I do think that's interesting how gripped we are by the the pain associated with infidelity. And um, and by the way, you know, we we're going to talk for quite some time about Anna Karenina and talk a lot about the plot. I was struck preparing for this episode that I think it's going to be really hard to take away from the experience of a reader coming to this book. It's that profound and that rich. Whereas Ethan Frome, I think we could easily give it away, that little short, almost a short story. Right. I don't think we can really successfully give Anna Karenina away. But as I mentioned, it begins with Stepan and Dolly. And then we're introduced to Levin and Kitty. Kitty is Dolly's uh, sister. Uh, Levin is a single man who lives in St. Petersburg who came to Moscow, and he came to propose to Kitty. But Kitty's family, especially her mother, is not that interested in Levin. And things take a turn not in Levin's direction when a single man by the name of Vronsky, Vronsky, comes on the scene. He's dashing uh, he's a soldier. He's very wealthy. He's very handsome. And then we also have, of course, Anna, step and sister, who had come to Moscow. She also lived in St. Petersburg with her husband Alexei, but she came to Moscow to try and save Dolly's marriage, which makes her
1: complicit in the, from the very start in the whole in the whole plot of the novel. Mm. I mean, her her. Basically, she saves her brother's marriage. And so, in a way, she has interfered in the situation. And she has, I don't know what the complications are, but, you know, you can see that she's set up as a character who is much more complicated from the very start and who's much more problematic in terms of her her actions.
0: There have been, I just looked it up, there's been at least 20 TV and movie adaptations of Anna Karenina. I haven't seen one of them. Mm-hmm. But I can I can say this when you when you when you read it and Anna is described, you can almost see it running like a movie in your head. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like the world slows down and a spotlight is put on Anna. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a there's an opening scene where she and Vronsky. There's just a spark between Anna and Vronsky, and uh, it's really it's really gripping. And then you realize that uh, anna herself is in a loveless marriage with uh, her husband much older formal stern wealthy we realize later on that uh, they married when anna was very young and uh, so that's that's the setup these are the the characters very simple uh, on on one hand that is all very simple but tolstoy gets right into their lives with that is it that third person omniscient point of view
1: yes and he also gets into their consciousness as well i mean you know he's third person but it's also limited because he gives us the experiences of ronsky and the thoughts of ronsky and the thoughts of anna and the thoughts of all these other characters so he moves i mean he, he's a running narrator who is omniscient and who at the same time allows his characters to reveal themselves to the reader and, by the way, your description of that, you know, the, the, the magnetic uh, connection between Anna and Vronsky, if you look, I just was looking at some of the film adaptations. And, of course, in, in the 30s, Greta Garbo was Anna. And uh, in the 40s, it was Vivian Leigh. So, you know, Hollywood, you know, had some eye for it. And, and, and actually, Graham Greene. The great British novelist reviewed the Greta Garbo uh, version, and he said that Garbo carries the film.
0: I'm actually interested now in, in seeing, in seeing one, or, one or one or two of them. Dad, you, you know that uh, I'm going to be looking for the theme of religion, just as, really? as a Christian and as a pastor. But boy, you can't miss it in this book, can you? No, Given no. Leo Tolstoy's personal interest in uh, what I would call Protestant liberalism. But it's it's throughout the book, and, and really very early on, as you know, we're introduced to Steppen's own wrestling with you know his infidelity, one character describes religion as, and I'm quoting here, a bridle for the barbarous part of the population, a bridle for the barbarous po- part of the population. And of course, all the characters except for the peasants at Levin's farm, are. They're not the barbarous part of the population. They are the elite. And Tolstoy lived in a world where it was expected for the lower classes to be genuinely religious and for the upper class to be formally religious. But it wasn't expected that the upper class would be genuinely, deeply, evangelically religious. Does that sound right?
1: Well, I mean, when you... Quoted that line: "The bridle for the for the what was barbarous it? The, part the of the bridle. population." Well, like the thing, it was Marx's religion is the, the opiate of the of masses. The yeah, yeah, it was the Absolutely. same kind of idea, the same idea. Well, what can you say? I mean, you can. You know, the thing you have to keep, you know, reiterating, though it's so obvious is that Tolstoy the, the reason Tolstoy is so great is because he has he's able to capture so many different aspects of sects of society and of individuals within society i mean that's an enormous i mean that's an enormous imaginative capacity on his part to be able to project the aristocrat the aristocrat like steva you know uh, anna's brother who is really really shallow and then you get the aristocrat like Vronsky, who's much more intelligent and much more thoughtful. And then you get the Levin's brother, who is sort of somewhat intellectual and fancies himself a serious, you know, scholar. Uh, not Levin's brother yet. Levin's half brother. I mean, Tolstoy can do this with, uh, with an enormous, a- enormous capacity. And this is really what the great 19th century novelists all did, you know. This is why the nineteenth-century novel is such a kind of such an extraordinary achievement across countries: Russia, France, England. Uh, they they captured the whole range of uh, of a society within their within their boundaries. You look at Thackeray and Vanity Fair, or George Eliot and Middlemarch, or. Uh, was it Flaubert, Balzac? I mean, these that's what they did. Now Tolstoy does it, of course, you know,
0: to perfection. Let me leave Tolstoy and, and go to Menikoff, Barry Menikoff, and just ask you a point blank question about religion. Do you see religion as a form of social control? So I, I see that idea of social control when you say when Tolstoy's character calls religion a bridle, well someone has to put the bridle on. Mm -hmm. Someone is wanting the underclass to be controlled. It's a church. And I know from, in American history, we call it social, historians have referred to that as social control. And I'm sure that you're familiar with that idea. And I'm curious, uh, and I know you'll be honest, do you see religion as a form of social control? Something either consciously or subconsciously, somebody foists, on someone else to keep them hardworking or moral or productive members of society. I mean, what do you think?
1: Well, it depends on you know the institution of religion. For example, I mean, if you were Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was trained as a Unitarian, well, I was trained as a Unitarian, but I mean, he said go out and you know he was trained in a religious context, but he went out and said the church is your own to find and make yourself. On the other hand, if you're an institutionalist. And the church is the way in which you define its religion.
0: I think we're talking about a more, a more conservative, not sort of a loosey-goosey, you know, the church is in your mind. But I think the, the heartbeat behind religion as a form of social control is a, is a religion that exacts, that says there are demands, there are well, danger well, the to follow. It,
1: you know, I, you're more of an expert on this than I am, but I mean, it depends on the but I'm religion. Asking you're,
0: but I'm asking your opinion.
1: Well, sure. Of course it is. I mean, the Catholic Church is a good example. The Catholic Church tries to exert control over its parishioners, over its members. There's a series of rules and a series of, you know, obligations that, uh, as a Catholic, as a practicing Catholic, as far as I can tell, you're supposed to observe. And that's why when you meet Catholics who've left the church, they say, I'm a lapsed Catholic. What that means is they, they, They've let go of those obligations and those uh, strictures, and so they've left, you know, they're no longer under the control of the church. Some religions, you know, smaller sects, Protestant sects that, you know, try to exercise control over their members, you can talk about them much better than I can, whether the Seventh-day Adventists or, you know, uh, Mormons. Baptists, Baptists. I mean, depends what kind of what kind of how much excess, or how much control the church wants to exert over you. Uh, so you said loosey goosey, meaning that you, if there's no church, you know, it's not. In a way, I think you're suggesting if there's no church, is no religion. But of course, religion is a form of control.
0: Well, but I guess that those who, I mean, the the character who said it's a bridal and the, the historian who says it's a form of social control is is arguing that the question of whether or not it's true is irrelevant. The issue here is that you've got one group uh, in society that's trying to get something, to exact something out of another group, be it hard work. So Paul Johnson in the 1970s wrote a famous work called The Shopkeeper's Millennium. A lot of people in the 17th, 18th, and even 19th centuries were arguing that we need to be very good people, very moral people, so that the second coming will will happen, and uh, the the earth needs to get better and better to bring Jesus back. That's uh, that's a view of the millennium. Well, well, Johnson plays with that idea, and he says, no, people in America weren't encouraging their employees to be good to bring back Jesus. These were shopkeepers who didn't want their employees to steal from them, and so they said, go to church, read your Bibles, pray because it's going to make you a more effective citizen. And I think to that end, uh, who can deny that there are people who are, who are like that, you know, who would use religion to control someone else. But, but it assumes or it denies that there's any, any truth claim that uh, genuine followers of a religion are trying to be faithful to. And so that's not, that's not control. I don't think that's
1: the case because you know religion can have different functions. I mean, it can have a spiritual function and it can have a social and a political function. I mean, one does not negate the other. I mean, uh, some people that are part of that religion might put more emphasis on one and be more committed to the to another, but the religion can function in many ways. I mean, you know, you can't say, you know, if it's in if it's engaging in social control, it has no spiritual. You know, meaning or people don't take its spiritual meaning to ta- to heart.
0: I think the idea of social control is getting to the getting to the heart of, of of motive. It's getting to the heart of motive of of someone you know who might you know preach a gospel. So I preach a gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, and I argue that. Uh, you know, that this faith is never alone. It's If it's genuine faith, it's going to be accompanied by good works. And and certainly those good works are going to be, I would argue, a benefit to whomever does them and a benefit to the society that they live in. That's not a form of social control, because I think the whole idea of that is that the preacher, you know, the one who's who's promoting this theology, his goal is to, you know, is to somehow control people and uh, that's just you know not not the case i think religion is fundamentally spiritual it's not a spiritual political social endeavor it might might have implications in the political and the social life but it's fundamentally a, a spiritual okay so why are we what are we debating here i mean well we're not debating i was just curious what you thought about that because when i read that a bridal for the is part of the population i think well that's bad it shouldn't be that. It shouldn't be seen by that. And it's awful that there are people who've used it that way. And I think you look at that and go, well, that's just life. It's the way it is.
1: That might be, I suppose, one way of looking at it. But as I say, I think it depends on the religion. And I think it depends on the practice and the implementation of the religion. I think it depends on the structure. I mean, you say uh, you your description of what you're preaching. You you even preach good works, but uh, it's my understanding in that in, in that kind of Protestant religion, good works are not the cause of salvation. Abs- you could, absolutely, you know. So somebody else might say, "Well, good works are important. You're not going to be saved unless you ha- unless you're doing well." Uh, so different religions are going to have different uh, di- different theologies and different different perspectives. And they're going to be applied differently. And, uh, you know, I don't know what to say. I think the variety of religions is what's interesting. I mean, if you were a Buddhist, I mean, would you need to go to uh, to the monastery to practice your religion? I mean, you can meditate. You can read you can create a and you can be spiritual and you could create that world within your own with within the confines of your own home and in your own life and you might not be, be see the inside of a of a
0: uh, a monastery or a shrine this is true but of course Tolstoy is although later on in the book the very end he will bring up other world religions but he is so interested in recognizing that all of his characters who are going through lots of trials are going to be try. they're going to try to understand this through a religious, a religious, a religious prism. In any event, Tolstoy has a way of keeping the action of the book going. And that is amazing. And again, I think one of the reasons why the novel is so incredibly popular. So pretty quickly on, Anna dives into an affair with Vronsky. She eventually gets pregnant. Kitty has already turned down Levin. The whole process of seeing Vronsky, the one that Kitty was enamored of, now enter into an affair with uh, Anna, and then she's... It's unclear whether or not she wants Levin, but Levin is sort of out of the picture. So for a season, Kitty dives into a, a kind of Christian spirituality. And at this point, Anna and Kitty seem to be the main, main characters. One falling, if you will, into sin. You know, Anna pursuing Vronsky and, and frankly, you know, getting him and, and him as well. And the other, the other pursuing God.
1: Yeah, but I don't think sin is the term that ever comes up in the uh, description of Anna's experience with uh, Anna's affair with Vronsky. Guilt, psychological, you know, uh, turmoil. But I don't think sin is a term that I don't recall. You know, it's you know, it's a big book, and I read it some time ago for this podcast. But uh, sin is
0: something that I think you may be projecting onto it. Well, just shorthand for she was doing what she wanted to do, and she's definitely struggling with it. So it's it's a very difficult situation she's in because she loves Vronsky and because she knows that. You know, if she stays with Vronsky, her family unit, you know, she and Alexei have a son that's going to be broken. She doesn't know what to do, but she knows that she, she knows that she can't turn to God. And here's what we're told about her. We're told the thought of seeking help from religion in her situation was as foreign to her as seeking help from Alexei Alexandrovich. That is her husband. She knew beforehand that the help of religion was possible only on condition of renouncing all that made up the whole meaning of life for her.
1: Well, that meant her, that meant her child and, you know, the prospects of her own life. And, I mean, all, all Tolstoy is doing is he's describing a person who's in a, who's in a particular, you know, class in society for whom religion was just a formal structure. And not anything terribly uh, significant. I mean, that's very clear. So, going and seeking religion and to to deal with the problem of her infidelity and of her, you know, her passion for for Vronsky and how she's going to, you know, manage this life with her son there. It was impossible, and of course, she is also part of a very, very structured a social world. And the affair is, you know, is really putting a. You know it's damaging her life right. in terms of her relations
0: there because you know she couldn't just divorce her husband under exactly. the under the under That's church right. law and state law but Dad I do want to push back a little bit because though religion wasn't important to her and I think you're right, God was important to her, and she says at one point she said, "God has made me so that I must love and live the idea being that you know anna is really wrestling with you know how could this be wrong if god made me to love and god made me to live how could it be wrong and i maybe she maybe leo tolstoy doesn't give her the word sin to use but clearly implied is how could this be a transgression how could i be breaching god's moral commandments if he made me to love and he made me to live and the only place that i can do that is with vronsky who just doesn't happen to be my husband uh, well I think
1: that's you know you describe it you describe it perfectly. I mean she is a woman who's married a man 20 years older than her who's had essentially a loveless marriage. She has suddenly been awakened through passion and desire by a man to experience the sensual And I would say even the psychological, you know, nature of her, of herself. And now she's caught in, in a dilemma. And because it's not the 20, even in the 20th century, she's caught in What am I going to do? And how am I going to resolve this? And there's no resolution that is, that there's no easy resolution. And I think one of the things Tolstoy is, is saying is he's not downplaying the passion or the desire But he's saying that the passion and desire is not necessarily going to find a a satisfactory resolution, whether it's because of the psychological character, whether it's because of the conditions of the culture, whether it's because of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There is no easy solution. And in a sense, there is no solution that's satisfactory. And this is the tragedy of the book, really, one of the tragedies of the book it takes its toll on a person who is by all any any account an admirable and and uh you know attractive and sympathetic figure absolutely anna karenina nobody says she did you know she, this is not you know like
0: she's not presented like a she's not presented to be a monster she's a, not v- a like, villainess you know, yeah. yeah i was thinking
1: of the character needithworth's uh the custom of a country but anyway it's it's marvelous it's uh and the thing about them, when, it, when we started, you know, I said I was thinking of great love stories. You know, I'm great literature love stories. I'm not talking about romance novels, and it was hard to find. But I was thinking of Henry James, and I was not going to go back to the Portrait of a Lady because the relationship between Isabel and uh, Gilbert Osmond is not really what I would call a great love. But James's late novel, The Wings of the Dove, is a great love story, and I think probably the greatest love story he wrote. And at the same time, you get the same. Ultimately, the end. The has one of the greatest lines in in literature, in my view, is the last line of *The Wings of the Dove*, where the two characters, that you know, who have you know, made a bad bargain, and they finally get what they want, but of course, at a terrible price. And uh, the character says, "We shall never be again as we were." There's a price you pay according to these writers in these books, is a price you pay for engage for being involved in life where there are no easy or, you know, convenient or acceptable solutions to problems.
0: Well Tolstoy paints life as it really is. And I think one of the one of the observations that I have is that even if anna wasn't very religious per se she's definitely wrestling with religion uh and with this idea of god and with this idea of of god having certain uh, certain ethics that she she knows she's not living up to and she may you know say they're not real she may deny them but existentially she knows they're out there and so there's that tension i that we talked about a few moments ago where you know, how could God make me this way and and yet withhold a man like Vronsky from me? And, and ultimately, she concludes that, you know, perhaps God, God wouldn't have done that, that he wants her to pursue Vronsky. But just pulling back from that, Dad, don't you think that this is a big reason why people leave—let me use orthodox with a, a little O—leave orthodox religious communities? Because at some level, what feels right— or natural to the human doesn't always line up with the dictates of that orthodox with a little O community. And I'm not thinking about horrible cults. We take that off the table for a moment, horrible cults, but whether it's Judaism or Christianity.
1: Well, Judaism, I mean, orthodox Judaism. Now I was orthodox, but my orthodoxy in my family was not the orthodoxy of say, what we call today the Hasidism, you know, the people who live in these very, very restricted, you know, communities. I mean, people try to get out of them and, you know, they have a hard time. Of course, you know, that's constricting. I mean, if religion, we're getting on this topic of religion, if religion is the issue of controlling your life, being the bridle that you put on, of course, it's going to be a problem. You don't want to be, you don't want, you're not a horse. You don't want to have to be, you know, uh run you know uh directed by somebody in the saddle holding the reins you want to be a free and open person now whether you're religious or not we all we all live within the constraints of our culture and our social mores and and everything else and one of the things i think tolstoy shows is that the technological world i mean it doesn't look technological because we see levin on his great country estate but when you go into the cities you suddenly see the technology you see city life which is very different from the you know the life that levin you know you know feels comfortable with at his home and that city life is really a technical life bureaucratic and full of machinery and i think it's not an accident that the the that the uh the great uh, scene of Anna's death is really with the locomotive train. You see the engine of modern industry. This is how she kills herself. I mean, in a way she's caught up in the culture that she cannot really, she, she certainly doesn't have the strength or the ability to navigate it to her own, to her own, uh, you know, for her own good and for her own self-interest and, and the throwing herself under the train. I mean, it seems to me is is a comment on that that uh, clash between the modern industrial world that Tolstoy is very suspicious
0: of. well that the only the only um question I would have about that interpretation is the fact that Anna represents everything modern about certainly religion. She represents a freedom from the constraints of traditionalism as embodied in the teaching of, of Christianity, and yet that, that modern way of looking at life, which is, if it feels good to me, it must be right. It fails her. So I would see it slightly differently, that yes, she, she, she was in a sense killed by a modernism of her own making, not one that was thrust upon her.
1: Well, it's not of her own making. I mean, she didn't create the world that she's living in. I mean, after all, she is a she is a person who needs a social world, who needs, and that social world has really, you know, turned its back on her. I mean, the scene at the uh, at the theater when she's snubbed and Vronsky tries to warn her not to go to that theater because you know you don't want to go there. He knows what's going to happen, and she refuses to see it. And she goes to the theater and she is completely,
0: completely, you know, uh, shunned. This is what makes the book such a masterpiece because, I mean, you're, you're right. It's, it's not as simple as saying, oh, she should have been faithful to her vows because she's surrounded by people who, even if they opposed the decisions that she made, Nonetheless, if they were to live up to their own vows, they would have treated her with a kind of compassion and gentleness and understanding that they completely, completely lacked. So it's a very, not only that, they're hypocritical because they're engaging in fidelity. She's not the only
1: one. But the thing about her is she tries to be honest about it. I mean, one of the great, one of the great, you know, amazing things is when she confesses her infidelity to her husband. Mm-hmm. Nobody has asked her to do that. She doesn't have to come forward and say that she could hide it. And there's a certain kind of... Well, it was pretty. It, it was pretty public by that point. But but nonetheless, no, I, she owns
0: it. She owns she 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 owned Upton before he knew. Okay, okay. Well, look. By the time, and we're we're certainly taking plenty of time on this, and uh, it's the last season, last episode of our season, and so we're just going to do it, Dad. But as the book progresses, the spotlight begins to turn to leaven. Uh, this man based in St. Petersburg, this professional, I don't want to call him a professional farmer because he really is an aristocrat, but he's chosen to be a farmer and he's chosen to manage his estate and try to modernize it in in various ways. And he's wrestling with um, he's wrestling with how Russia is changing. Uh, you know, the, the the serfs are not slaves. They had been they had been freed uh, decades i think earlier so society's really changed and he's working through all of that you know the woman that you know he loves turned him down so he's got the prospect of being single for a long time and then tolstoy takes a microscope and places levin's soul right under that microscope and at one point we're told about levin And I'll read you a quote here, Dad. The more he strained to think, the clearer it became to him that it was undoubtedly so that he had actually forgotten, overlooked in his life one small circumstance, that death would come and everything would end, that it was not worth starting anything and that nothing could possibly be done about it. Yes, it was terrible, terrible but it was so. And that's then- near uh, the
1: end of the novel. that's no, the no, 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 no. This is
0: right in the middle. And also right in, in the, the middle, middle, also in the middle, Levin says, it's true that it's time to die and that everything is nonsense. I- I'll tell you truly, I value my thought and work terribly. But in essence, think about it. This whole world of ours is just a bit of mildew that grew over a tiny planet and we think we can have something great. Thoughts, deeds, they're all grains of sand. Hmm.
1: So existential crisis, you're dealing with the thinker. Why am I
0: here? Absolutely. In the midst of this, and he's having these thoughts in, in the midst of this, 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 he doesn't know he's in the middle of a book, but in the midst of Anna Karenina, here is Levin trying to figure out life. And uh, that's the question I wanted to ask. I wanted to ask you about the title of the book because I genuinely struggled with that as I was reading, and it, it kept me turning pages in a sense. And it, and I really struggled with it because the the more I read, the more it, it seemed it should have been named after Levin. She's not necessarily the main character. So how would you, I, I have a reason, I think, why uh, the book is named after her, but I'm wondering what you think.
1: Well. Uh, I don't really have an answer to that because uh, you, what you're saying I think is fairly is fairly well uh, agreed to by commentators but I mean who's gonna buy a book with the name Levin on it or you know the the agricultural the agriculturalist you see I mean it is Levin the, love the
0: agriculturalist story.
1: the love story is really is really a uh, a, a key factor it's why people pick up the book when, with without knowing anything about it. They want to read about this great love story. They don't want to pick it up because they want to see what was the position of the Russian, of, an, of a sophisticated Russian landowner towards his serfs and how to manage property in the late 19th century.
0: It's really hysterical because my edition, which is the one you recommended, has a picture of a of just sort of the uh, blurry knees of a young woman with flowers in between them. So it's a fairly seductive picture. And, uh, and clearly, you know, it's all, it, it's pointing to Anna Karenina, but I would maybe that I'm, I, I'm reading too much into it, but I think a case can be made that, that Anna Karenina becomes the standard, uh, by which all the other characters Eventually relate to. So, for example, it's Kitty's life that's turned upside down when Anna steals Vronsky. and that that really shapes Kitty. Dolly is living with an unfaithful man, her own husband, while she sees Anna trying to have everything that that she wants. You've got Alexei, of course, Anna's husband, who's battling with insecurity and the Christian doctrine of forgiveness, again, all because of his wife, Anna's unfaithfulness. Perhaps most interestingly, you have Vronsky, who is face-to-face with the repercussions of his actions when at times he actually engages Alexei, and you can tell that Vronsky feels uh, bad about it. And then as time goes on, Vronsky realizes that uh, he didn't actually get exactly what he wanted, when he ended up being with Anna. And uh, Tolstoy says that he was shown, and I'm quoting now, the eternal error people make in imagining that happiness is the realization of desires. (laughs) Okay. Life
1: doesn't, you know... Be careful of what you choose, what you uh, what you uh, you know you uh, want or you ask for. You may get it, and then it may turn out that it's not exactly all that it was cracked up to be. We all we, we, we recognize that. I mean, this is this is part of Tolstoy's greatness. I mean, you know, nothing is the way it seems, and and desire in itself is is it's it's a a finite quality. I mean, desire eventually, uh, Peter's out depends on what the age you are. It depends on how long, but even in a, in a young, in a young relationship, it can Peter out very quickly. So, I mean, Tolstoy is very aware of what he's doing. One thing I would say earlier to just make a slight change, Anna doesn't steal Vronsky from Kitty. Vronsky was just playing with Kitty and he was not at all interested in her seriously. And, uh, the you know he meets Anna he's attracted to Anna and I mean he just forgets about his flirtation with Kitty. Kitty doesn't know that of course, but Anna didn't steal
0: him steal him away from her. I think that's just a minor. Okay, yeah. Quibble. I mean Anna really is like the sun, and Kitty is like yeah. the Kitty's the a young girl. She's a, she's a young girl, but it's not. It's not long after that. Uh, not long after Tolstoy puts those words in Vronsky's mouth. Or at least he gives words to Vronsky's thoughts that uh, that Tolstoy has someone say for educated people, the question of whether God is can no longer exist, and so obviously i'm I'm attuned to the religious question th- because it it's just it's throughout the book so what kind of what kind of God would create a world where people are consumed with desires that seem larger than life, only to find those desires lead to a mirage. That's That seems well, to be some of the tension.
1: I, I don't think the desires always lead to a mirage. I mean, there are, after all, happy endings. I mean, people discover that each uh, discover other people. They find their desires. They have another partner, and they have a they have a good relationship. It's not, but we're looking at novels in which it doesn't work out. I mean, nobody's going to write a novel about a happy marriage. Well, if they do, it's a comedy.
0: But I think that Tolstoy is saying something, a uh, slightly different. Uh, I, I think, I think he's he's owning this statement that that happiness is something different than the realization of of what's right in front of you whether it's the first marriage or the second marriage it's not that the first marriage didn't work out but the second marriage might it's that happiness simply is not found in the thing that you think you're going to find it in it does it's it's i think he's saying something something deeper
1: well i mean the standard uh, cliche is don't look for happiness you know because you know if you're looking for it you're not going to find it you should just be get involved in doing something that interests you and that uh, that uh, occupies you and happiness will come along by the side i mean this why it's, this is why it's always struck me very strange that people are always talking about being happy you know i want to be happy everybody says i just want my children to be happy i mean i don't even know what that means but you know, everybody believes it. Uh, but, I mean, traditionally, I mean, people recognize, or would, I think was John Stuart Mill said it, you don't go out seeking happiness. You go out seeking something that, you know, you know how to do and you that, that fulfills you. And that...
0: Uh, it's very difficult to talk about, I think. I think it's very difficult to talk about because... Even that statement, you go about seeking that which fulfills you. Well, that's your desire. I mean it's okay. You you find out what it is you can do in a very old
1: fashioned way. You spend your life learning to do mm-hmm. it well and then you know who you are. I mean mm-hmm. that's what that's what being is all about. I mean, one of the things it's about, I mean, but saying, Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna study something because I know it's gonna make me happy, that's just uh just childish is it's what you're saying. It's not childish, but it's, uh, it's ridiculous, actually.
0: <laughs> well, as the novel begins to close, various other main characters begin to learn things. So, for example, Dolly begins to learn that Anna's life really isn't all it's cracked up to be. Right. She comes to see what Anna, at least for much of the novel, can't see, that beauty fades and that she can't keep Vronsky forever. Tolstoy does such a good job, it's such a sad moment when after one fight where Vronsky and Anna don't reconcile, we're told, and I'm quoting again here, it was the first time since the start of their liaison that he had parted from her without take talking it all through. It's just a very simple statement. You know, you know, they got in a fight and they didn't reconcile. But it's really what's really so amazing about the book is, you know, you really do the reader can't help but have feel sadness for Anna, even though she, she's left her husband and left her son and chosen Ronsky. I I know I know you 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 but I'm just saying she's
1: got she's got she's got a very difficult she's she's got a she's in a very difficult position. How could you not feel sympathetic to her? I mean and and she herself is driving herself crazy. Yeah. I mean, you know, she gets paranoid. She thinks Vronsky's having an affair. She needs more and more attention. I mean, she's not, you know, uh, she's not, you know, sliding over the ice and doing, you know, uh, triple
0: axles. So the irony is that Anna, well, I, I wonder if you'd agree with me. I think the irony is that Anna ends in a relationship that is not completely unlike her, her own marriage. She ends up so discouraged, and I think she put it like this, if he is kind and gentle towards me out of duty, Vronsky, without loving me, and I am not to have what I want, which is, of course, Vronsky's love. She says, that is a thousand times worse even than anger. It's hell. I don't think
1: it's the same. She winds up in the same situation she's in with the first husband, Karenin. Although I always think it's interesting that he gives the same name to both Ronsky and Karenin, Alexi. I don't think she winds up in the same situation, but there's so many, so many infinite situations in which you can be unhappy and miserable and be regretful. And of course she is, and she is bringing a lot of this on herself psychologically. I mean, she's creating, you know, this anger, she's creating so much anxiety that Vronsky is getting, you know, fed up. And so he pulls back and he said, I'm tired of all of this, you know. So what Cholster is really doing is he's showing the routine of a couple's relationship, you know. It's not just the desire, it's the dailiness of their life and the complexity of it and the tedium and the anxiety and the stress, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right,
0: right. But that's exactly uh, that's exactly what she had with her husband. No, it's not exactly. She didn't have she didn't have sex with her husband. It's not well, they had a child, so they figured it out at one point. I look, I it's not that it's not that I want to defend the, um, the health of the first marriage. I simply want to present what I'm seeing in the text itself, which is, you know, marriage is a lot about tedium and dissatisfaction and endurance. And I think Tolstoy brings that out. I mean, a lot of life is, you know, not, not aiming for a grand ideal, but simply aiming to live in the day, in the moment. And it's not obvious to me, especially and we have we don't have time to go into alexei karenin but uh he's he's a deep man he's not presented as a monster either well i don't say he's a monster
1: but i wouldn't say he's a deep man and i would say he gets caught up in the end we see him he's become a kind of a a kind of religious mystic he's led by women who have their own axe to grind and you know he's become some kind of a christian saint in his own head uh that doesn't make him a monster but it doesn't make him someone i find particularly attractive and it doesn't mean that you know the situation between anna and vronsky is not the same as the situation between anna and corinne and and the fact that it ends badly in any case doesn't mean you can equate the, the different relationships i mean in the end it's a tragedy It's a tragedy. I mean, she throws herself in front of a train and in the most gruesome way is
0: killed. And it affects everybody else. Well, the, the book doesn't end with Anna's demise. Right. The book ends with Levin. His wife is pregnant and nearly dies in childbirth.
1: Levin's discovery of faith.
0: That's how it ends. So, Dad, let's land the plane. That's that's what that's how Tolstoy wanted to end this book, with Lenin's exactly Lenin's discovery of the faith. Here's this man who is nothing but a tortured soul. It said toward the end of the book, what happens after Levin simply cannot conclude life is meaningless? And the reader's prepared for this, especially the reader who is sympathetic to Anna, this poor girl, Mary young, look at her tragic ending. I mean the reader is prepared really wrestle with this question. Why? Why don't we all just throw ourselves under a train? I mean, what kind of world do we live in? And this is what we read, understanding clearly then. This is what Levin understands. Understanding clearly then for the first time that for every man and for himself, nothing lay ahead but suffering, death, and eternal oblivion, he decided that it was impossible to live that way that he had either to explain his life so that it did not look like the wicked mockery of some devil or shoot himself. He had to have some explanation of life and its meaning, or else... It's like Kierkegaard's leap of faith. That's what he does. He takes a leap of
1: faith, and he accepts it. I don't think there's anything... I mean, it's existentialist, if you will. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Now you want to give it the the nice... Uh, russian orthodox you know trappings that's okay but basically it's an existential sleep of faith and uh he accepts it and the book ends i mean tolstoy because tolstoy himself is moving in that direction we know that so you know he gives it to levin and who is a kind of alter ego for himself But uh, I would say it's it's not a it's not a philosophical or rationalist acceptance of faith. It's an existentialist acceptance of faith. There's nothing I can do about it. This is the world I'm in. I love my wife. I have a child. I now love this child. I will accept religion. I mean,
0: and not just any religion. At least whether he's not going to accept Buddhism, he's not going to become a
1: Buddhist. He's not going to become a Jew. Well,
0: but to his credit, he he talks about it. I mean Levin actually wrestles with why this religion why should I wrestle with Christianity and not I don't know if he mentions Buddhism but I think he might have because I, I remember this distinctly and he finally decides that you know Tolstoy says Christianity reveals quote unquote the good and and that's sort of that that is his that's sort of at least enough for him at that moment and Christianity provides for him the equipment that he needs to to see that life has meaning. I guess the question is, do you think Tolstoy is providing an answer to a question posed by the, the plot of the book? I mean, is there a question posed by Anna Karenina that this tidy leap of faith is intended to answer?
1: Uh, I don't really think so. I mean, I don't think the leap of faith answers anything other than Levin's acceptance of and uh, his resignation to uh, to a life that he's he's finally uh, you know accommodated himself to, and you know and when, in a similar way, Dolly accommodates herself to life at the end. She stops fighting with her husband. Really, she knows he's never going to change him, and she accepts that she's a mother and that she's grooming her children, and that's the life she has, and. Uh, there's, it seems to me that the Tolstoy shows that all these different characters have to adjust in one way or another to the to the lives and the worlds that they are, you know, they're born into and that they struggle against and that they finally resolve themselves with. The tragedy with Anna is Anna, Anna has no way of accepting this and Anna has no way of resolving it. And so she's lost and so she dies. You know, she can't be neatly captured. And, you know... Vronsky has tried to adapt, you know, he's given up his career, he's made a life with Anna. He thinks that they can live together and somehow, uh, but you know, Anna can't can't accept it. It does you know, because of what we've talked about and what's going on in her. So she gives it up and then Vronsky, what has what Vronsky got? He goes off to fight in the Turco Russia War Russo Turkish War, and who knows whether he comes back or not. I mean Uh, His life is is, uh, pretty much uh, done for intellectually, spiritually, emotionally. Uh, And Levin, of course, who is more of a hero, as you pointed out, gets the last word. You know, he is the attractive figure throughout. I mean, intellectually.
0: Does that make the book less attractive to you, Dad, that Levin gets the last word and that there is this... You know this sense of peace that, that that he leaves with. Does that make the book slightly more moralistic and therefore slightly less appealing to you? Well, I mean, you know, a novel is not perfect.
1: Maybe Tolstoy's novels are perfect, but a novel is not. Per- a novel mm-hmm. is a big, big, uh, you know, product. Right. You know, and it can be uneven. And that's why people can read novels, and they can like some parts of it, and not like other parts of it. Short stories can be perfect, but novels are very rarely perfect. Well, I, you know, Stevenson's novel is pretty perfect. David novel is pretty <laughs> perfect, but but it's Stevenson's novel is not eight hundred pages either. You see, I don't find the ending there. I find it sort of like uh, uh, how do you say it's. Uh, it's sort of after the fact, you know. The real ending is the is the suicide. That's the real ending of. Yeah, the book. that's
0: what I thought that that you would say, and 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 you know, fair enough. When I, as I mentioned in the last uh, podcast episode, I think I felt the way you feel about Anna Karenina when I finished his last novel, Resurrection. I really felt like there was a a great story that had been sort of sullied by this you know this communal this promotion of some type of communal socialist christianity that i just thought where in the world did he go but i have to admit that when i got to the end of of anna karenina and i looked at the tragedy that is not just her death but the tragedy that is her life and not just her you know not finding satisfaction in her first marriage but here you have if but not finding satisfaction with ronsky i just i i saw Tolstoy, unveiling such a profound truth, and it's something that even Levin wrestled with, if I remember right. You know, he was always trying to write this bestseller, this 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 work that would change the landscape of how Russians dealt with agriculture, and you know, it, it never really it never really uh, uh, sold. And then you know, he almost loses his daughter, but you know, he's able to communicate. A, that there is a God, and if you put your faith in him, he's something weighty enough to be worthy of your dreams. As That's an existential statement, but I think it's a point that Tolstoy is making, and I think it's one reason why his book has endured the test of time. And the second thing that he points out is when you come to that point of peace, you no longer have to live for some dream or some desire just enjoy the day enjoy the hour in other words putting your faith in in god doesn't make you so heavenly minded you've no earthly good it actually frees you from a daily existential crisis and allows you to milk the cow and hug your kids and um and and live a simple life that the god who made you would have you live and if that's not the choice you make well don't be surprised if you find yourself underneath a train so here we are two different men with really two different opinions on the ending of the book
1: well i think everybody would agree that the certainly the ending at the train station is the powerful ending and if you didn't know that and if you were reading it completely ignorant you would be shocked then you would be you know that would be <laughs> that would be enough you know to say this is this is this is this is how the book ends. It's fantastic. And then you go on and you read the epilogue. Okay. Fine. No, no problem. The author has the right to, you know, throw in that little, uh, <laughs> that little moral yeah. a- a- aphorism or moral epilogue, if you will. But I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I mean, I don't, I don't uh, think it minimizes Levin's character that he finally makes that leap. Not mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, given everything he describes about them, it's uh, it's it's perfectly plausible and and in character. But it doesn't it doesn't obviate what goes on throughout the rest of the book. That uh, Anna's life and Anna's experience and Anna's Anna's uh, relationship with Vronsky is a powerful expression of uh, of life, mm. and that's why people keep reading it.
0: So, Dad, as we uh, as we wrap up our second season, what have you enjoyed about uh, recording these episodes? We've done 24 now. Uh, you talked about Stone Mother, that you hope Stone Mother brought some pleasure to uh, people who, who might read your memoir. What's brought pleasure to you in uh, being queried by me about all these works of literature?
1: Well, I mean, it's going to be rather banal but uh, i've enjoyed the I've, I've enjoyed the time with you and i've enjoyed the time with you and i've i've also i've also enjoyed learning about you in a way that i would never have been able to do otherwise i mean you know we, we're not going at it with an agenda but i think for some reason or other these conversations open us up to you know expressions and uh that that are un you know' were not planned, maybe you planning them more because you're preparing these these questions but uh well, I can't plan uh, your answers <laughs> no, but uh this has been an ex uh, I, I find this a very great experience for me. It's very pleasurable. I'm not always sure that uh, I'm up to the up to the task of what your,
0: your of your queries, but you know it's very good to see
1: you and talk with
0: you. C.S. Lewis talked about friendship. He wrote a book called, I think it's called, uh, "The Four Loves," and he talks about friendship as one kind of love. And he talked about friendship is very often not not two. And he was talking about men in particular, not two men sort of thinking about one another, but two men distracted by a third thing, and it's it's doing that third thing that ironically brings them closer together. And uh, it's been an interesting an interesting distraction to be thoughtful about all this great literature out there. But I, I certainly have to agree that I've, I feel like not only in, in your memoir where I just simply learned about you as a boy, but um, in the books that you've chosen for me to read and in the graciousness that you've responded, because I really am in so many ways, a fundamentalist, it's a horrible word, but just religiously, you know, there are very few Christian doctrines, historic doctrines. I don't know any historic Christian doctrine that I wouldn't hold. And uh, you have uh, you've handled my my probing questions just so graciously, and that's meant a lot to me.
1: Well, I appreciate that, and uh, I hope the listeners uh, listeners get something out of this and enjoy some of these uh, conversations. And if they spark an interest in some of the books that's that's great as an old as an ex literature professor that's always that's always a good bark henry james the wings of the dove frederick
0: uh, hemingway farewell to arms those are great love stories well we are going to end with that if you have any questions or comments about this season or this episode do feel free to email us at at islandidols@gmail.com uh, we're going to take a break But uh, we hope to come back to you with uh, another season in the not-too-distant future. Dad, aloha. Aloha, Aaron. Ciao.